New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support. It is only through a change in human consciousness that the world will be transformed. The personal and the planetary are connected. As we expand our awareness of mind, body, psyche, and spirit, and bring that awareness actively into the world, so also will the world be changed. This is our quest as we explore new dimensions. have you exclaimed there isn't enough time? Albert Einstein once wrote, people like us who believe in physics know that the distinction between past, present, and future is only a stubbornly persistent illusion. Our guest today, Lisa Broderick, says that once you understand the science of time, you understand that our experience of time is one part physical and one part perception. She goes on to give us many insights as to how we can be liberated from the illusion that time is strictly linear and is our enemy. Today, we'll be exploring how time is less limited than we think, and it can be stretched and bent with our guest, Lisa Broderick. Lisa Broderick earned her BA from Stanford University and an MBA from Duke University. She's a Transcendental Meditation Siddha and has attended the Monroe Institute for the Exploration of Expanded States of Consciousness. For 15 years, she studied imagery and dream reading at the American Institute for Mental Imagery. She currently runs a business consultancy based in New York City that helps socially conscious entrepreneurs manifest their creativity and energy. She's the author of All the Time in the World, Learn to Control Your Experience of Time to Live a Life Without Limitations. Join us for the next hour as we explore the limitless nature of time with our guest, Lisa Broderick. I'm speaking with Ms. Broderick from her home by remote connection. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. I'll be your host. Welcome to New Dimensions. Ms. Broderick, welcome. Justine, it is a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for having me. It's my pleasure. Do you mind if I call you Lisa? Of course. Please do. Thank you. Um, Let's start with the physics of time. Um, I know uh, Einstein has said that time is stretchable, like a rubber band. Um, so let's talk about the physics of time. T tell us what, what you know about quantum entanglement and superposition and observer effects, some of, some of these uh, ideas. Well, before we get to that, I usually start with something a little more basic, and that is, why does time exist at all? Why does it? And why does it seem that sometimes, 
course, time seems to run at different rates, at least from our perception, and possibly even from the sense of physical reality, when we'll get into that, which is space-time. So the theory of why time exists is because things move around. Without movement, there is no time. Think about that for a moment. Think about being in a dark room with no movement and no shading and no sunlight and no moonlight, the timeless nature of that. Well, in a sense, there's time on Earth because the Earth is moving. And if it weren't moving, it's possible. Of course, we can't imagine a world where the Earth isn't moving, but we do delineate time and scientists measure time by the fact that things move around. So that's the physical component of time. We move around, things move around, change occurs, time passes. If there was no change, time would not pass. Imagine a world without change. So that's a timelessness, number one. Then there's the perception nature of time. Why is it in our minds that sometimes a minute seems like an hour and an hour seems like a minute? Einstein famously said, who you quoted, you know, with a pretty girl, an hour seems like a minute when your hand's on a hot stove. A minute seems like an hour, right? That's the perception part of it. So what has always fascinated me is, where does human thought meet physics? Where in our minds, how do our minds, what our minds perceive and do and think about, how does it affect time in a reality sense, a physical sense, and of course also in a perception sense? So that's a bit of a primer on time. And of course, time is greatly studied in many disciplines, but I will tell you before we tackle this, time is the busy, biggest problem in physics today. It is. People, to scientists simply do not understand what time is, why it is, the way that it runs, how it affects the world in a physical sense, you know, a Newtonian sense, uh, Galileo, but also a quantum sense, which is the new science of time. So in that quantum sense, we, our perception, um, I, I think that there's something that I read in your book about how our, our perception or the, 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 our ability to process images actually degrades over time. So it's why, like, summertime as a kid seems like a really long time, but as an adult, it seems like go like in a flash. That's a theory, and I do. What I wanted to do was I wanted to cover really all of the science, the science which suggests that it's a physical manifestation of human experience, the science that suggests it's a quantum manifestation of the way the world works, the science that suggests it's something in between, the nebulous area of, how, of what thoughts are and how we think. That explanation you're referring to, that was a study at Duke University, which studied the nature of time as perceived by people who age, and yes, the theory was that as our brains age, they become less capable of taking quick snapshots and memories so that the fewer there are of them, the more quickly it seems like time passes. Like if you had a deck of cards with only five cards in it, it would be a small deck. If you had a deck of cards with 500 cards in it, it would be a large deck. The 500 cards are when you were a kid, remembering all those memories, and the five cards when you're an adult are the memories that you don't remember anymore because your brain is not capable of processing them. It's a theory. I don't agree with it, but I wanted to suggest it as one explanation of why that's true for all of us. 
Well, let's let's go into time. Um, we think of it mostly in our culture as going forward, going from past to future, and one direction, a linear direction, like um, um, an arrow flying from a bow. So I, what's the fallacy of that that you've discovered? Well, there are many. First, first of all, the experience of people. What is a memory? Is a memory going back in time, or is it some sort of record of time like a snapshot? So we'll set that aside. That's a human experience of time, right? In physics and in science in general, here's the thing that really piqued my interest when I began to study time. And that is, in most of the key equations that account for how the world works, the, the function, the data input of time works just as well forward as backwards. So why is that? Why do all of these equations that describe the way our world works, if time is one of the inputs, if time ran backwards, the equation would still work. That's number one. No one knows why that's true, but that is a fact in science, number one. Number two, when we think about time, we already know that from a scientific standpoint, it does stretch like a rubber band. Time and space, it is not the time it is here on Earth in space. Not even close. It's called sidereal time. It's a completely different clock where gravity affects the passing of time so that time passes a little slower than it does here on Earth. Because gravity and the way that the way that it affects time is affecting time and space versus time on Earth. So that's another data input. Here's a third one. If you put one of the most precise clocks known to man, an atomic clock, on top of the highest mountain in the, on Earth, and then at sea level, an identical clock at sea level, and they started at the same time, eventually the two clocks would show a different time. So is, is this like one of those anomalies in, in physics, so to speak, one of those hard problems? Um, I, I remember reading something uh, that uh, the British physicist Lord Kelvin had once said in 1900 that, oh, these are just unexplained little phenomena, but, but we, physics is really over, and except for these little clouds of anomalies. So is time one of those little clouds of anomalies? I do not accept that. Here's a, thing, here's a quote to remember. Winston Churchill famously said, Everyone now and then bumps up against the truth and they pick themselves up and they dust themselves off and they go on like nothing happened. Well, I think that's what that quote you had mentioned was about time. Oh, time just is. Well, gravity just is too. And it doesn't mean that we can't eventually explain it in the terms of our, the way our world works. That's what science does. Science explains how our world works in increasingly precise ways so that they can predict the future. What I wanted to do was to explain the science of time very particularly so that people might be able to use it in practical ways for their own lives. Well, I know that one of the major components of time and the shifting of it has to do with the observer effect. So what, what would you say about the observer effect and how it affects time? 
from a scientific standpoint, as we know, just to go back a little bit, right? So it's when a, a phenomenon is observed, it behaves differently on a quantum level. Now, here's the, here's the rub. No one's ever seen a quanta. No one's ever seen the quantum level. It's mathematical. Even with the world's most powerful microscopes, it's still mathematical calculations. With that said, it's proven time and time again for decades and close to 100 years now that that is the case, that when a phenomenon is observed, it behaves differently, whatever the observer is, whether it's a measurement or a human. So we'll put that in our quiver and think about that for a moment. What fascinated me was, does how we show up in, as humans in our minds affect physical reality? Now, what that suggests is it's where human experience meets quantum mechanics. What is that? What is the moment? What is the intersection where if we show up in a particular way in our minds, the world changes around us? On a, in a true physical sense. And I think if we want to explore that question, the easiest lens to look through that question is time. Because time is more easily manipulable than having a pickle show up on your lap or an airplane manifest itself in your backyard. Time we can work <laughs> with as a, as a beginning way of possibly influencing our physical reality. I want to remind our listeners, I'm here with Lisa Broderick, and she's the author of All the Time in the World, Learn to Control Your Experience of Time to Live a Life Without Limitations. And if you want to know more about her work, you can go to her website, Lisa Broderick, and she spells her last name B-R-O-D-E-R-I-C-K, lisabroderick.com. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Lisa Broderick, and she's the author of All the Time in the World. And that's what we're talking about, about time and how it can be stretched and bent in our perception of time. You use something, Lisa, called focused perception. It's a, a way of working with time. Can you describe what focused perception is? Yes, so I've been a meditator for, um, for 30 years, and what I found with meditation, I first did it as a practice to relax and to feel, um, more, feel better and as a wellness and health practice. 
But what I soon learned is that it greatly increased my ability to focus on things. And it allowed me to do things, very complex tasks, in a way that I was not as challenged as I would have been. I was undistracted. So I did that for many years, and then I began to be interested in and study time. And I would notice that there are periods of time, especially while meditating, where I seem to drop into a state of timelessness. And that is, I would be meditating in my usual way, and it would last for a very, very long, quote, amount of time. Uninterrupted, I was not asleep. I was not particularly aware of my surroundings. I was sitting upright, and I did not fall over. But time did not travel, did not pass as usual. And it piqued my interest. What was it about this state that I had gotten into using a meditative practice which seemed to control time? And then when I began to study it, Justine, I realized, of course, we can dream. And in a dream, it seems like five hours have gone by and you wake up and five minutes have gone by. So we've had this whole experience in our minds. What is that? So my teacher, Jerry Epstein, my teacher of dream reading, used to call it no time. There is a way, there's a human perception, a level of human perception, where we drop into a space of no time. Time does not pass as usual. And experientially, it could be when you're hugging your new, your newborn for the first time. An amazing kiss. It could be a, it could be a, a very dangerous experience, like a car crash, where you're feeling slow motion. It could be you're lost in thought and deep in a project. And you look up and 12 hours have passed. Something like that. There's something about the mind and our perception of time. What I wanted to develop was a way to go into that place intentionally. And so I developed this practice of focused perception, which is a way to drop into no time, this place where time does not travel as usual. It does not pass in the normal way. And then see when we were in that place whether we could affect physical reality. And as it turns out, we can. You mention in your book this wonderful exercise where we can really test it out by looking at a clock that has a second hand. Right. Do you want to describe this particular exercise? In the 70s, there was a Czech scientist named Itzhak Bentov, and he was very famous. He was a, a biomechanical engineer. He was also responsible for inventing the hypodermic needle, which was slightly curved so it wouldn't hurt anybody when it punctured. But he was fascinated with time as well. And he created an experiment where one would look at a second hand on a clock or watch face in a way that was undisturbed, such as close to your face, and hold it there and then go into a state. He didn't call it focused perception, and he didn't know how to meditate, interestingly enough. But go away in one's mind to the most vivid, engulfing, sensory-rich experience you could imagine, like, like being on the beach with someone you love and feeling the sand and the warmth of the sun and the smell of the salt spray and touching someone that you loved and going away in your mind, which is a form of meditation. And when you come back to reality, you startle yourself back into the present moment. The second hand on the clock or watch face will have stopped. And in some cases, it appears to move backwards. Now, why is that? 
This is a physical clock or watch face. We are watching it with our eyes. That's true. So something is happening with our brain, our eyes, our perception, our ability to focus, and physical reality. And the intersection is right at that moment. So that's an example of focused perception used for the stopping clock exercise. Now, I wanted to ask you, Lisa, though, focus perception it is not the same as selective attention, oh, right? Opposite. I, opposite. So opposite. Uh, explain to us what selective attention is. Maybe we could talk about that uh, basketball court uh, experiment. There was, a very, there was a famous experiment decades ago where psychologists created a, a scenario where uh, young people were wearing two types of shirts, jerseys, one white and one black. And in the psychological experiment, the observers of the experiment, people, human, human participants, were told to watch the basketball players play basketball, pass the balls to one another, and count the passes between the players wearing black shirts and the players wearing white shirts. And so, as instructed, the participants did this. Now, for fun, the psychologists, spoiler alert, if you ever want to look up the experiment on the internet, it's still there. The psychologist had a man in a gorilla costume walk onto the basketball court, turn to the, the public and the camera and wave and walk off. And then they surveyed the participants later and asked them, how many passes did the white team make? Well, the white team made 34. How many passes did the black, the, the team wearing black make, etc.? Did you see anything unusual on the basketball court? No. They were so busy counting passes, they missed something as obvious as a gorilla on a basketball court waving to them and waving to the camera. Why is that? Well, I believe this selective attention affects our everyday life. When you have an experience of, did I really just see that? Did that just happen? I saw, I, I dropped a wine glass and it, it flew in slow motion and I caught it by the stem. Did that really happen? But then we pick ourselves up and we dust ourselves off and we go on like nothing happened. That is selective attention. And I believe it explains why we know so little about time. So focus perception is very different from that um, selective attention, right? Yes, selective attention is our ability to tune out that which is not important to us. Focused perception is our ability to focus on, to the exclusion of all other things, one thing. Complete opposites. And focused perception is what we use to change and control our experience of time. So I... We talk about brain science and how all of this works and how our brain works and how consciousness works. And I'm just wondering, um, there there is a idea that the brain is actually an antenna that is kind of scouring our environment. And it rather than just just strictly in our heads, just encapsulated in our heads, there's something else going on that is beyond our physical brain. It, 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 am I getting that correct? Or is that your experience and your research? Well, that the truth is, we'll never know. As you said, it's the hard problem of consciousness. 
what is it to think? What happens when the brain uh, does what it does? What makes someone alive versus not alive or any organism? So with this, a theory is that consciousness, whatever consciousness is, awareness, I think, therefore I am, consciousness is non-local. So local would be consciousness, you're emanating, your brain is emanating consciousness. And that is what consciousness is. Non-local consciousness is that the, the universe is conscious. And in a giant, in a sea, an ocean of consciousness, you are part of that consciousness, receiving and sending messages in an endless way from your antenna, your brain. It's a different take on a, on a, on an idea that we are all interconnected which I know New Dimensions is so importantly covering in its work. And that is, if consciousness is non-local, we truly can send and receive messages. Mothers can know when their child is harmed or has died from thousands of miles away, which has been reported. People can have experiences of leaving their body and report what they saw and have it be valid from a physical standpoint. We will never know. We may never know. <laughs> I, I I love your in in your book. You really describe very very in a way that we can get and understand why consciousness, a study of consciousness, is really so difficult because of that. Going back to what we talked about earlier, the observer effect. So if we observe consciousness, it stops it in time and. In my words, it becomes static then, but consciousness is a process, right. not not a, a a physical thing. And so if we observe it, we're kind of stopping it then. So think about that. So you just said process. What is required for a process? Time to pass. That's interesting. Is there consciousness without time passing? I would submit there is. When I have gone into these states of deep meditation and hours and hours have passed and I've remained upright, not falling down, I'm not uncomfortable, I have been somewhere else in my mind with no memory of it, and for all I know, five minutes have passed and, and it's been five hours, that was consciousness. And I don't, I think that that place of no time where I seem to find myself is, is disconnected from the passage of time, and that's where we need to get to to understand uh, consciousness causes collapse of the wave function, the observer effect. I, I believe that is where human thought meets physics, on that plane of no time. The, the, the interaction between human thought and physical matter is not, is, is not, is not a place where time passes which is why the closer we can get to that using our minds, using focused perception, the greater possibility we have to control time and to control our experience of time. That's the point of the focused perception exercise, taking oneself out of time. So, Lisa, can you give an example of how we can stretch time yeah. and I, I think you've already mentioned several, but just to be real specific, how can we stretch time and in that way manipulate it, so to speak? Okay. So with the theory or the, the, the theory that how we show up to a situation 
affects our experience of it in particular time. Imagine a situation, any of us now, where we are super rushed. We do not have enough time. We will not be able to get to the store before it closes. We will not be able to finish the report we need to report. We need to finish whatever that thing is. And we're terribly focused on the idea, the concept, the outcome that we do not have enough time. What if instead we sat ourselves down and entered a state of focused perception? I'm going to have to interrupt you for just one moment because um, I just we're going to have to take a break. And I want to come back because I don't want to rush you with that image. I'm here with Lisa Broderick. She is the author of All the Time in the World. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Lisa Broderick, and she is the author of All the Time in the World. And right now we're talking about um, stretching time, and we're talking about when we're feeling rushed and we're we're saying, oh, I'm going to be late for this appointment or this um, place that I'm supposed to be. So um, I'd love for you to continue with that, how we can shift that from being late to something else. Yes. So back to the theory that what if how we show up to a situation, to an experience in our minds affects how we experience physical reality? That's a theory. And also I would suggest that's quantum physics. That is the observer effect. We're showing up to watching a particle, observing a particle, and it changes. What if we use that for an experience of time in this way? So everyone imagine that, and don't do this if you're driving. With that said, if you're in a normal state, imagine that there's something you need to do or be or go to arrive and you do not have enough time. Close your eyes and begin to relax. And the way that you do that, a simple way to relax is to trigger your parasympathetic nervous system by breathing in through your nose and out through your mouth. And the exhalations out through your mouth are twice as long. When you begin to do that, your brain chemistry changes. You change from fight or flight. You change from an alpha state to a theta state, a meditative state, a runner's high. So in focused perception, we do this for a bit. Now imagine that you're already done. Whatever it is, you are at your destination, you are looking at the clock and it is 8 a.m., you are sitting down for the test, you're pressing send on that big report you thought you would never finish, you are, you are waking up at 5.30 a.m., which you never thought you could do without an alarm clock, whatever that is, live the visceral experience of that as, as sensory rich as you possibly can. And hold that in your mind for a moment, holding that. And as we do that together, we're actually reenacting the, the clock, the stopping clock exercise, where we're imagining a beautiful sensory experience and we open our eyes and the second hand appears to have stopped. 
Well, in this way, we can change how we are showing up for something we know is going to happen in a different way. We are descending into a place of focused perception, which is theta brainwave states at least, and could actually be other brainwave states, which are even deeper than that. I have done that and had brain brain sensors, brain wave sensors on when I've done that. Our brain chemistry changes. We're no longer afraid, fight or flight, of something happening that we cannot control. We simply wake up and begin driving. We begin working on our report. We begin, we go to bed knowing full well that we'll wake up at 5.30. Does this always work? No, of course not. A meteorite could, you know, that power could go out and a meteorite could fall. But that's the physical nature of time. What I'm describing is the perception nature of time, which I believe if we focus in this way, we can alter for our, our physical experience for what happens and unfolds over time. That, that reminds me of something that you actually did, in, and I think you call it um, supersight. In, in other words, that you, you're visualizing something, and you were visualizing your home in Florida. You weren't there at the time, but there was a hurricane happening. So it was something that happened that you actually did in, in real time, yes. so to speak. <laughs> Where that comes from is if we can, once once the idea, if how we show up for a situation in our minds changes our experience of reality in particular time, what if we could use that for other things? What if we could drop in to a situation in our minds and experience some aspect of that? Would it change us? Would it change the situation? Well, as it turns out, I went to Stanford. And, and you're broadcasting from the Bay Area, Stanford Research Institute performed nearly a million experiments on just this idea of whether supersight, the ability to remotely view a situation, could be proven without a doubt. And what they learned in the 1970s was that it was pretty powerfully effective in some circumstances. One of the most famous cases was, had to do with the Iran hostages where an SRI researcher was able to describe aspects of the hostage, know the hostage was still alive, that they were deathly ill, and lead to the finding of an American hostage. So with his mind from Palo Alto, California, how is that? Well, if that's true, then I was in a hurricane, and I've been in many hurricanes living on the East Coast, I decided I, I, I was in a flood zone. I needed to evacuate. My house abutted the ocean, which was rising. So I left with my animals, and we drove away, and I locked the house up. And the last thing I did was take a picture in my mind of the house, of the, of the part of the room, which was the kitchen and living room that faced the ocean, coming back and being completely dry. There was no damage. There was nothing. I kept that image in my mind for nearly a week as the hurricane passed. It was quite something. And instead of being afraid and instead of being concerned and worrying about my house, I simply dropped into a place of focused perception where I saw the room as though I experienced it, just as the Stanford researcher experienced what they experienced in so many proven incidents, that the room was dry. When I came back nearly a week later, I noticed something remarkable. The ocean had come up to the window. I know that because there was sand. The house was completely dry, and my neighbor's houses were not dry. 
now. I have a scientific background, but I'm trained clinically, and many of us are. The truth is, will we ever know with this hard, hard uh, idea of consciousness, the hard question, whether that had an effect? At the very least, it had me show up for my entire week away, calm, collected, knowing an outcome. Could it have been different? Of course it could have. With that said, it wasn't different. And I think the more we dive into the hard problem of consciousness, we're going to learn that we have a much greater effect on physical reality from a measurable standpoint, which means science, than we ever thought we did. But it's not a matter of taking things apart, a reductionist kind of view of science where you just pull out one piece or another piece and we 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 look at only that piece. We're talking about consciousness as something that is fundamental, even more fundamental than material science uh, and and how it works. I'm I'm just wondering, you mentioned like worry and fear and and if we're in worry and fear, that also changes our perception of time. I remember uh, once this weird thing happened, going back to the the quote you had of um, Winston Churchill, where something weird happens and then we kind of disregard it. We said, hmm, well, that doesn't compute, is, so I'm not going to think about it anymore. But this weirdness was that there was some sort of accident on the freeway, and when I became conscious, I, I registered that something up in front of me was going wrong. And then the next moment that I had of consciousness, my car was on the side of the road. I have absolutely no idea how it got there. It seemed magical. I had no memory of steering it or moving it. I just, I, my perception was that something magical happened. I was in this lane right now, and suddenly I'm off to the side of the road. Have, have you experienced that in your research? Not only have I experienced it, there are many stories in the book. This is much more common than people realize. It is a situation where I believe there is a difference in the way the brain processes fear versus a sense of danger, an innate sense of danger. Fear triggers fight or flight. It triggers a chemical response. It speeds things up. It can blind us. It can be very detrimental. Of course, it's very good for the small animal running away from the coyote who wants to eat it. With that said, for humans, it is, it is a, in an experience, it can be very detrimental. It can blind us. Now, a sense of danger where fear does not descend into the brain is a very interesting state, and I've studied that quite extensively. The story that you tell is a story that I've had and, and other stories in my book where, in particular, driving, because think about driving at 70 miles an hour, how quickly things happen, and we're actually able to navigate. My friend Bill was on a California highway driving about 80 miles an hour. He was in the middle lane. There was a car to his left in the fast lane. It was an open highway between Yosemite and San Francisco. And as he drove along, he perceived a truck uh, in front of him. A tire came off of the truck, bounced three times in slow motion, 
and went through the windshield of the car next to him, instantly killing the driver. Now, Bill watched all of this in horror, but in slow motion without any sense of fear, as he described it to me. As that car spun out of control, which it would, he was easily able to navigate to the side of the road, as you described, end up on the side of the road, experiencing the whole experience in slow motion and not really knowing how that happened. That's one experience where people experience slow motion. Another experience is quite interesting and may have to do with quantum physics. And that is an experience of an, uh, another friend of mine, Elena, who was on the Autobahn in Germany. And while driving on the Autobahn, she was a young driver. It was one of her, one of her first driving experiences on the Autobahn. If you know Germany, there are three lanes. There's the fast lane, the middle lane, and the slow lane. And in the fast lane, Germans drive very fast. So Elena was in the slow lane. She was driving her car in, in her teens. And uh, the car in front of her began to spin out of control and crash as she was driving. She experienced this in slow motion. But at the same time, she looked into her rearview mirror and a car was coming up in the middle lane, trapping her. And while this was all happening, she remained calm, but she dropped into a state of no time, where like you, without any recollection whatsoever, she was transported two lanes over to the fast lane, driving in the fast lane, unscathed, not knowing what happened with the car crash, having essentially lost time during that whole time in between, and continued driving. Now, there's a very interesting quantum mechanics explanation for that called multiverse. A multiverse is every decision that every conscious being makes, every movement in the universe triggers a new universe. Imagine, so we're speaking now, every syllable coming out of my voice is triggering a new universe for me and everything else until an unlimited number of universes exist. What if in that instance she died? And she was transported to a new universe. What if you did? What if multiverse is true? You were on the side of the road and you, the trajectory of your life has completely changed because you are in a different universe. That is a theoretically possible scientific explanation for those exper experiments. And it's valid within physics today. Lisa, this is so fascinating. This is just great. I I appreciate your bringing that up. I want to remind our listeners, I'm here with Lisa Broderick, and she's the author of All the Time in the World. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions.
I'm here with Lisa Broderick. She is the author of All the Time in the World, and we're talking about our perception of time. One of the chapters in your book, you you say, death never runs out of time. That's a very, like, provocative title. Death, Death never runs out of time. What does that mean? Well, imagine from the perspective of all that we've talked about, the state of no time is a state where nothing moves and and the physical laws of our world do not apply. In a sense, if consciousness never dies, that's a state of the physical death of the body. What if when when the body dies, our whatever our consciousness is, is no longer subject to time? And what if some aspect of us lives on? I tell a story in my book where the passing of my mother happened years ago. My mother was clinically minded. She was an economist by training. Toward the end of her life, we talked about some of these ideas that I had about time and death and consciousness. And I said, you know, Mom, we're, your, your life is, com- we, is coming to an end. We know that. She had cancer. And, and her options were running out, and she was growing weaker. I said, what if after you pass to another place and the body stops, whatever death is, what if you could do something? What if there was some way that you could show us you were still there? And she was pretty skeptical. But my brother, who's a physician, was going to be there with us. And he was, in fact, there with us at the end of my mother's life in her home. And so she, she said, well, I'll think about it. I said, good. And I said, by the way, electricity seems to be the easiest thing to manipulate. I know this because I have touched a light bulb in a meditative state and it's broken. Lights have gone on and off. I used to have a terrible, terrible time with my home alarm. And I believe that's because when we get into these very deep meditative states, something happens we can't explain. So I suggested this to my mother, and then it was at the end of her life years ago. We were in her home, and she died very early in the morning as we were all with her. It was very beautiful. And a couple of hours later, I was still in her bedroom, and we had she had remained with us because we could deal with things in the morning. I'd remained with her, and I got an overwhelming sense that it would be a good idea to leave the bedroom where she was. She, was, she still remained. And I got my sister up off the floor who'd been sleeping, and I said, come on, we got to go. So we moved to another room where my brother and his wife were sleeping. And just as we'd put our pillows and blankets down on the living room floor, the radio next to my mother's bed went on full blast. NPR, San Francisco, morning edition. And my brother looked at me and he goes, I've been here for days and that radio has never gone on. My mother loved NPR. So that was number one. Then as we settled back down and recovered from that, we turned the lights off. The television reset itself. The television, as though it just started again, and we looked at each other. Why would that happen? But still, we were picking ourselves up and dusting ourselves off and going on like nothing happened, although I had an idea of what might be happening. But the the final chapter of this is the next morning. We went to some property my brother was developing for his home in Santa Cruz above the Monterey Bay. And my mother, of course, had a medical alert pendant, and the medical alert pendant had been left in her home, locked up when the coroner had taken away the body. And we had moved and taken our things. And we were now having a day with my brother and his family and their property. And his telephone rang, his cell phone. And he answered it, hello. 
and it was the medical alert company asking uh, where whether our mother was okay because the attendant had been depressed for 40 minutes. Now, his answer was, well, it's next to it. It, it was it's in her home, which is locked up and she has passed away. So what was all that about? What I believe is there may be a time at, at an instant, an ability for those of us who are no longer in a corporeal sense to make contact. I've experienced it. It's extremely common. 10% or 15% of all humans experience a past life, a death experience, the death of a loved one, the coming back, the unexplained ability to know when another loved one has died. So we're all interconnected. And I believe that was an instance. So in some sense, death knows no time. Well, I, just just a brief, brief story. My own personal story of that is um, when my husband's mother died and we were with her when she died. I unplugged her. And as we drove home afterwards, um, my husband was having second thoughts about did he do the right thing unplugging her. And um, at that particular moment of time as he had that particular thought there was a sticker that had been uh, on the windshield of our car for for over a year and at that moment he had that idea this sticker peeled off of the windshield and fell onto the dashboard and the sticker said, Grateful Dead Backstage Pass. Oh, wow. So it was like like this moment of that kind of contact. Right. That there is something that's going on beyond our our physical world that manifesting and we we experience it. It is an experience. Um and exercise, you give lots of exercises in in the book. It's just wonderful of different ways of of going into like telepathy or receiving insight or or of course focused perception. But the morning, this is a morning exercise, and I I love this one um, where you ask yourself, "What is mine to do today?" Can you describe that morning exercise for us? Yes, I can, Justine. Thank you for asking. I have used this exercise for decades, and the theory was, and by the way, this is taught in many ancient spiritual traditions. I've been told this isn't new age; this is old age. Consciousness is so uh, has been so experienced and developed by so many traditions, and we stand on the shoulders right of those giants. But the idea that, first of all, if we don't know where we're going, then we're less likely to get there. What if we could apply that to our day? And so I live my day in advance every day, which is also another exercise. I actually, as I lie in bed in the time of no time, which would be between 3 and 5 a.m., where I usually wake up, just for a moment, I remember to live my entire day as though it's a ballet and I'm, I'm swimming through my day and the check comes and the call is made and the email comes and a conversation, something like this is so joyous. It's a, it's a symphony, a ballet of joy for my day. I live all of the experiences that I know are going to happen. 
and I lived that day. But then there's one place at the end of that exercise we could get to. And that is, what is it that's mine to do today? If I am in a movie starring me, and I'm up on the screen, I think of myself as Julia Roberts. I'm up there, and I'm Julia Roberts, and I'm doing all kinds of things with her wonderful sense of humor and dramatic ability, and, and she's, and I'm her, I'm on the screen, and I'm in a movie theater watching her. What would I want her to do today? What is her contribution to the movie, to the script? to the story, to all the players. And I think of that one thing and I hold it in my mind and I experience it very viscerally as though it's a movie. And for me, it was this time spent with you, Justine, which is so wonderful to be able to share with so many people ideas about time in ways that might shift our awareness, our consciousness. That was mine to do today, but it may be something else. It may be helping someone who's dying. It may be it may be uh, a, a difficult journey. It may be a difficult conversation. Whatever that is, again, back to the idea, does how we show up in our minds affect physical reality? This may be the easiest way to practice that and to prove that it's true. If you have a difficult conversation and you live that conversation in advance as though it is a wonderful, positive outcome, outcome benefiting all involved you're going to show up to that conversation pretty differently than if you're afraid than if you are in the car in the car example than if you're terrified of being killed and you lose all sense of time and you do not drop into the time of no time or slow time you're just uh you're just panicked and in fight or flight what if you're not that way that is when we are able to know what it is that's ours to do today and I and I would say that uh, to that it's important that we don't be overwhelmed by all the different things that are going on in the world that we like to affect. That we we know that whatever that contribution is, it is enough. Yes, it is, and that back to selective attention and focused perception and how we show up in our minds. We are enough. And that is much of this work. Again, this is a this is a, a way to experience the world through the lens of time. But truly, there's so many spiritual lineages which have different lenses. And of course, important to one of those lenses is in our in our life starring us, we are enough. And when we show up, it changes the entire world. The ripple of our words generates a new multiverse in which many new things happen. And the butterfly effect affects everyone on the planet and the universe just by our actions and thoughts. Holding that thought can really help us show up in our lives in a much more fulfilling way. Oh, Lisa, I want to thank you so much for being part of New Dimensions today. You've given us so much food for thought here and and focus perception, as you say. I've been here with Lisa Broderick, and she is the author of All the Time in the World, Learn to Control Your Experience of Time and Live a Life Without Limitations. And her website is lisabroderick.com. She spells her last name B-R-O-D-E-R-I-C-K, lisabroderick.com. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You've been listening to New Dimensions. This is program number 3740.
New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. You can also subscribe to our free weekly podcasts and find over a thousand hours of audio dialogues in our searchable archive. New Dimensions is produced by New Dimensions Radio in Santa Rosa, California, USA. Our executive producer is Justine Willis-Toms. Our post-production editor is Lou Judson. For over four decades, New Dimensions has been producing weekly conversations at the leading edge. We sincerely thank all of you who have supported us by being members of Friends of New Dimensions as well as members of our affiliate stations. My name is Dan Drayson. On behalf of everyone at New Dimensions whose endeavors make this program possible, I'm wishing you well. New Dimensions Radio is an independent producer supported by listener contributions. To find out more about the program you've just heard, to subscribe to our free weekly newsletter and our New Dimensions and New Dimensions Cafe podcasts, and to access thousands of other programs in the New Dimensions archive, please visit our website, newdimensions.org. That's newdimensions.org. Or call us at 707-468-5215. That's 707-468-5215. Please join us next time as we explore New Dimensions. Thank you.